Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Global Insight podcast from Control Risks. Today, we're going to look at how organizations can navigate geopolitical dynamics in ESG compliance and regulation. ESG has evolved from buzzword to concrete regulation, from mostly voluntary action to mandatory obligation, from direct implications to more diffuse supply chain exposure. All of these aspects collide with geopolitics. This will only intensify as geopolitical fragmentation and localization combines with the knock-on effects of climate disruption, emerging tech and demographic shifts. We are working with clients to tackle these kinds of multifaceted risks every day. And I've got two of the people with me who are doing that work. On the podcast for this edition, we have Gabriel Brazil who is a senior analyst in our London office here with me. Welcome, Gabriel. Thank you, Claudine. It's great to be here. I'm also delighted to be joined on this edition of the podcast by Shika Kerr, who is a senior analyst based in Delhi. Welcome, Shika. Thanks, Claudine. Hi, Gabriel. Looking forward to the discussion. Now, both of you spend a lot of your time thinking about ESG, but believe it or not, not everybody actually does. And so I am going to start by just quickly making clear what that acronym means. Because I think sometimes we forget that not everybody is as comfortable with the acronym as we are. So just going to start by making clear that we are talking about environmental, social and governance issues. Um, But I'm going to start with a question that actually gets to a bit of debate actually about that G and whether governance is really what it should or does indeed stand for most um, usefully. And this podcast is all about geopolitics and ESG. So let's start there. Gabby, I'm going to turn to you for this one. What is the interplay between geopolitics and ESG? Thanks, Claudine. I think that's a great one. Uh, And as you said, there's much debate about the letters. Uh, Some people say that uh, the G for governance should really rule the other ones, that uh, because governance is really the element that can make sure that uh, environmental and social programs work and are effective and so on. But for the purposes of this conversation, and I think if, if you'd like to uh, play around with words and letters, uh, the G could also mean geopolitics. It could be an alternative meaning, and the reason for that is uh, supply chains. So on the one hand, uh, we have seen in the past couple of years uh, increased geopolitical volatility on the back of uh, the war in Ukraine, the growing rivalry between China and the US. And this has triggered companies, mainly multinationals, into uh, reassessing how they uh, organize their supply chains uh, worldwide. Uh, on the other hand, uh, ESG regulation has become much more focused on indirect risks, uh, so risks across supply chains. And so companies now need to uh, report on suppliers and partners that are in different countries. So that's where uh, geopolitics uh, meets uh, ESG. And uh, we know that uh, geopolitics is a risk on its own and ESG as well. So uh, what we're seeing in client conversations uh, is really this uh, compounding uh, risk environment. And it's really one that's not going anywhere anytime soon based on how we're seeing things. Yeah, I think geopolitics and ESG are really interesting areas of risk at the moment because they don't necessarily um, fall into a clear 
function in terms of who should be responsible for them in an organization. And so actually there are very few risks at the moment that you can talk about without thinking about how they relate back to or might be driven by geopolitical or environmental, social and governance issues. You mentioned there that geopolitical volatility, Gabrielle, that that's really driving a lot of um, the, the work that we're doing, helping clients understand how to navigate the ESG regulatory landscape at the moment. What role is geopolitics playing in in the way that the ESG regulatory landscape is evolving and also into the way that rules are being enforced? That's another great one, Claudine. Uh, I, I think the, the first assumption there is that things are uneven. Uh, we have a different levels of ESG adoption in different regions. And uh, probably the, uh, the the key point for us to highlight is that the European Union is really the agenda setter for ESG regulation. Uh, it will persist as an agenda setter and uh, it will continue to introduce regulation that will have increasingly global impacts. And that's probably the uh, main interplay there. Uh, this week, for example, entered uh, into force the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, which is uh, a regulation that balances the differences between uh, carbon prices of imported products by uh, uh, companies in the uh, block and domestically produced products. Uh, it aims to prevent climate goals from being undermined by produ production outsourcing. And so obviously it impacts exporters. So we had uh, in the past couple of years already uh, countries complaining about that, uh, such as uh, Brazil, Indonesia, uh, Canada, Colombia. So th this is a type of thing uh, that we will increasingly see in the coming years when ESG regulation and climate action uh, presents some uh, geopolitical trade-offs and obviously it, not everyone will be satisfied in the short term. And that will uh, add tensions to the already fragile geopolitical environment that we have right now. How, how does it look in Delhi, Shika? What sort of role do you think the geopolitics is playing in the way that ESG regulations are evolving? Well, I think in, in Delhi in particular, um, India for, for one is emerging or, or rather positioning itself as a, as a leading player, as a potential uh, alternative to many other markets insofar as supply chain manufacturing hubs are concerned. And in that respect, it is continuing to sort of present itself as an attractive market opportunity, including from an ESG perspective. So a lot of the regulations that we've seen around ESG, for example, are around ensuring that domestic players are able to attract capital, um, including for greener investments. And that's really what's helping drive um, the accelerated adoption, if you will, of ESG regulations here. I think this is also to secure um, its own commitment towards intensity reduction targets. And in that sense, it sort of achieves two purposes for an emerging market like India. So that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, actually, Sheikha, that role that ESG rules can play in actually being a tool that states can use to exert their influence and achieve their strategic objectives. Talk us through the way that the US and China might be doing that. Well, in comparison to the EU, for example, where ESG regulations seem to have secured a more comfortable seat at the table, um, the ongoing sort of politics around ESG regulations seems to, I think, be derailing uh, progress towards obtaining regional harmonization insofar as ESG regulations are concerned. Um, I think there have been about 15 states in the United States that have passed anti-ESG laws um, and another 10 
waiting to pass or deliberate upon ESG laws, which would mean that any progress towards sort of linking sustainability reporting with fiduciary responsibility um, could be um, a far-flung prospect. Um, and that could have far-reaching pro- uh, consequences, not, not least within its borders, but also beyond, because that could impact ability for emerging markets or players in emerging markets to secure very needed capital um, and, and, and further sort of derailed prospects towards transitioning to greener or, or sustainability focused investments. Okay. And what about China? How, how do things look there from an ESG regulation perspective? The story is somewhat different in China. Um, there's been a strong commitment to ecological protection there, um, and that's been backed by some uh, very strict laws. Um, and these are sort of things that are paving the way for a fairly um, enhanced ESG-focused regulation in the country, which would, of course, further um, uplift um, the global ESG regulations landscape. But even then, um, that would not necessarily translate into um, access to reliable data, um, not 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 least because of the operating realities on the ground, as well as access to reliable data. So two major economies with very different stories um, that could ultimately have uh, significant consequences in so far as achieving consistency around uh, ESG regulations at a global stage go. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. That sounds like, I was just about to ask you both about compliance challenges. I think I'm already getting a sense of what one of the key answers to that question might be, global complexity and inconsistency. Um, Gabriel, go on, talk us through that. What What are the big compliance challenges? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that was, in fact, part of my answer. Uh, then we have data reliability, as Chica said. Uh, most of the regulatory obligations right now require, you know, accurate reporting and disclosure, and companies are responsible for that information, and uh, they need to uh, be able to get that information from the local level accurately, and that's really hard. Sometimes it requires, an, uh, you know, surveys or uh, there, there, there's some methodological difficulties, for example, for uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, calculations. So number one, data reliability for sure. Then we have the, the challenge of harmonizing data from different providers. In the past couple of years, uh, many uh, companies introduced an, a number of uh, ESG data solutions out there, including country risk, by the way, some of them are great. Uh, but you still need to harmonize that and make sense of that information in a way that's consistent and that helps decision making. Uh, so that's two. Uh, three, uh, you need buy-in from top management. And uh, we know that this is a, this is a period where uh, when uh, money is tight uh, on the back of uh, inflation and high interest uh, rates uh, everywhere, uh, and you do need to invest uh, to uh, you know be able to get the, the right data, the right uh, uh, tools uh, to to manage that data and so on. So uh, three for sure uh, is uh, buy-in, uh, and by buy-in uh, I mean management, but also internal because sometimes uh, doing ESG uh, initiatives internally requires it, it needs to be a transversal thing. You can't have a couple of people with ESG roles and they will uh, do everything. That works 
really needs to be integrated to uh, procurement, to strategy, to uh, HR, you, you know, a number of uh, practice areas internally. And you, you do need to uh, make sure that those stakeholders are engaged and, uh, you know, uh, they, they see value in that. So this is still a challenge. Uh, then, of course, you have greenwashing because uh, companies, I think they increasingly appreciate the importance of uh, doing the right thing and, and having robust ESG uh, policies, but they also need to communicate that. And that needs to be in a way that uh, obviously helps uh, brand enhancement, but also do not expose them to uh, greenwashing accusations. If we look at climate litigation and other types of uh, lawsuits in involving environmental issues, uh, the majority of them are about greenwashing, and that can be really a big risk for, for brands out there. Even brands that are, are doing some uh, interesting stuff, they just need to calibrate the way they uh, communicate that. Uh, so yeah, there are a number of challenges. Some of them compound each other, and obviously they add to other risk challenges that companies uh, already have. This is, uh, in fact, a topic uh, that uh, we've been discussing at Control Risk recently, which is how uh, risk management's been overwhelmed in recent uh, years due to, uh, you know, simultaneous uh, crises uh, everywhere. And, uh, you know, not always companies uh, have the, the, the resources they need uh, to uh, tackle that. Uh, what do you think, Claudine? I think that issue of risk management functions being overwhelmed and a lack of appreciation of the relevance of ESG to a broad variety of risk types and risk potential risk events um, is one of the big challenges that that companies face. Um, but we hear all the time, don't we, about that data, yep. that data issue as well. And 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 um, I do want to ask um, Shika. Um, so Gay, we've we've just talked through there some of the issues around data, brand, and um, having appropriate resources dedicated to tackling ESG. Um, do they resonate in emerging markets? Are there any particular issues around compliance in emerging markets? Well, absolutely. Um, they resonate completely to answer your question. And and, and just to reiterate, I, I, I fully take on board what Gabriel spoke about. Um, I think that one of the main compliance challenges is the length and breadth of compliances, existing compliances itself. Um, and, and, and the interesting thing to note over here is, and I'll take the example of India because um, I'm sitting here, so why not, um, is that some of the aspects that touch upon the E and the S are already covered under existing laws that have existed for the last couple of decades, if not more. Um, so say, for example, we've got uh, potential investors uh, in, in the real estate sector, for example, who before having a project started on the ground actually need to go and get all the rights, permits and approvals. And to do that, they need to be able to conduct feasibility studies on the physical proposed project, um, such as the impact that the, uh, the building itself will have on, on, on nearby water bodies, um, the pollution that would likely be emitted from that particular uh, building, um, and, and the waste that that building would ultimately accumulate. And all these things are already um, aspects that, that, that businesses need to comply with insofar as the E goes, for example, 
to get permits on and approvals on. Um, so the compliance for that is already happening. Similarly, with respect to um, wages for workers um, and ensuring that they are paid um, at a fair scale and that their social security uh, payments are taken care of, there are also existing laws for that. So in many ways, these aspects are already covered. I think with the ESG developing into what it has today, um, from a mere buzzword to a regulation, there tends to be a thinking that this is an added complication that that we know very little about, but actually it comes down to the bare basics and, and, and integrating that with fiduciary obligations, reporting obligations, including to stakeholders, really only enhances um, compliances, whether voluntary or involuntary of organizations. That's such a good point, Sheikha. So it's, it really comes back to unpacking what you're really talking about and understanding what's new versus what's actually been around for a very, very long time. I mean, certainly as political risk analysts, some of the issues that we're talking about under the ESG umbrella are, of course, the ones that have been the, the bread and butter um, of, 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 of our daily life for, 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 for many decades. Um, and thinking back to projects that we've delivered, you know, 10, 20 years ago that we're thinking about, um, you know, community engagement, for example, or the implications of a project for, um, as you say, water pollution, that, that those are issues that we just thought about and didn't package in quite the same way. And they, and I think perhaps didn't have the same, mismanaging them maybe didn't have the same consequences um, as, as they would have today. Yeah. Simply put, the impact of, 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 of why those compliances existed in the first place was not as apparent as it is to us now in the form of accelerated risks from climate change. Um, and so in order to demonstrate response and action, um, ESG regulations, um, while, while complicated in so far as um, bringing on board or integrating with existing compliance requirements goes, um, is certainly something that businesses and governments alike continue to focus on. But that takes me to another thought in my head um, and another challenge around compliance. Um, and that is around the extent to which there is a consensus on the importance of these issues and 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 of ESG and and, and governments taking uh, governments and business uh, being at the forefront and and taking action on environmental, social, and governance issues, um, we've seen certainly where I'm sitting here in the UK, a bit of a backlash at the moment against um, environmental policies from the government. Also in the US, a huge amount of um, politicisation around the concept of ESG and what it means. How significant a threat do you think that backlash against ESG regulation is in terms of potentially forcing any watering down or rowing back of government commitments and of their willingness to enforce? The short answer is, I think it's a significant problem and the politicization of ESG and overall climate action uh, is really something that will prevent us from uh, achieving the results we need uh, in the short and the long term. Uh, we can discuss the reasons behind that. It can be a polarization, for example, uh, in the US. It can be weak governments, such as uh, here in the UK. Uh, there are a number of political drivers, uh, but uh, I think the really important point is that uh, the underlying issues uh, behind ESG, uh, notably climate change and human rights, uh, is that those are complex issues to tackle. And normally whenever there's a complex issue, there is someone to offer a simple solution that doesn't work. Uh, we do need as a society uh, to uh, you know, accept the fact that a complex problem requires uh, coordination, 
uh, the involvement of, of everyone uh, and costs. We are currently experiencing, we're talking geopolitics. I think geopolitically speaking, uh, we experience a number of geopolitical phenomena that are inflationary in the short term. If we think of uh, near shoring and friendly shoring and uh, the green transition and the transition uh, from, uh, from, from, uh, for companies who, who want to leave China or, or go to other markets, everything uh, costs money in the short term. And we need to brace for that and, and accommodate that in, in the business plans uh, of the companies. Uh, and if we ask ourselves uh, who should pay the bill, governance ca cannot. Uh, the, the fact that they, they've been producing fiscal deficits in the past couple of years is one of the key reasons why we have uh, high inflation right now. So they, they just do not have the, the space. So it must be the companies. Uh, there's this uh, study by the IMF, I think a couple of uh, weeks ago, that says that 80% uh, of the investment, the, the climate investment that is required by 2030 needs to be made by company. That goes to 90% if we take China out. So there's there's no alternative. And uh, so, so what, what we're gonna see is uh, companies being forced to pay the bill. Uh, as long as governments provide the right uh, regulatory incentives and obviously consumers provide the right market incentives so everything can be uh, less cost, uh, costly for, for business. But it's not a, an easy problem to solve. That's a lot of pressure on companies, isn't it? The ball has been passed to them. Over to you. Yep. Um, I would actually add to that um, uh, by saying that it is possibly better to have a discussion around who can pay the bill as opposed to paying the bill for a enforcement penalty, uh, enforcement related penalty. And that's really where the importance of ensuring consistency um, across borders, across supply chains to ESG related regulations comes into force and, 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 and assumes a greater significant role. Um, so yeah, in, in addition to ensuring um, support from businesses, from governments, I beg your pardon, Definitely a constructive, comprehensive approach towards um, securing sustainable financing opportunities and avenues um, should remain um, equally a responsibility for organizations. So with the clients that you you work with, um, Shika, what, what levels of maturity do you see within companies with respect to how they are approaching managing ESG risk? That's a great question. Um, well, I, I would answer by saying um, it's 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 pleasantly worried and on a progressively uh, positive path. We've spoken to multiple investors um, from from markets based in Europe um, that have been um, fairly clear in their agenda um, uh, with with respect to what they're looking for in terms of ESG focused risk assessments across their supply chains that pass through to India. Um, and have already done very mature studies with respect to materiality um, and, and, and ensuring compliance with some of the emerging laws from uh, from the European Union. Equally, we've spoken to investors that perhaps are based in emerging markets um, and do not quite have an idea of the potential regulations that could apply to them for their operations, but are very keen um, to conduct a risk assessment anyway. Um, now we've got two sort of buckets of, of potential investors. One that is not just bound by regulations compliance um, and therefore by, by mandatory reporting requirements, but also one that may not be um, required 
to report on such um, uh, matters across the supply chain um, on a mandatory basis, but is but is still wanting to do so on a voluntary basis, presumably because um, that could be in anticipation of the laws eventually applying to them, but also to in order to ensure that there is a level of marketability to their practices to investors that they may be working with going forward. Um, so that's why I say that 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 considerations on ESG regulations and ESG reporting across investors, across players, um, it con- continues to be increasing. Um, and, we, and we see various forms of that. I wanted to bring it back to geopolitics. The environment, fractured, volatile as it is, also meaning a lot of these issues are highly politicized and emotive. Um, how are companies readying for the next geopolitical shock, do you think? And for the possibility that the way that they prepare for that could in some way have blowback for their reputation and for their ability to demonstrate that they're living up to their ESG requirements and and the standards they set themselves. First, I think you're right. Politicization is a major issue. Uh, It's not going anywhere and it does need to be something uh, for companies to, to factor in. Uh, what we saw in the UK uh, in the past couple of weeks, that the backpedaling of some policies, something that we will see elsewhere in the coming months, coming years. Uh, you know, this rolling back being packaged as a more pragmatic and realistic approach and people saying that uh, the energy transition, for example, needs to be a transition, not really a transformation and things like that. And uh, this will come with uh, regulatory volatility. So to your question, what companies can do. Number one is monitor uh, uh, regulation. And we know that uh, we were just talking about uh, the, the uh, harmonization of regulation. Uh, so there's some issues that are very much local. So companies with global exposure, they do need to monitor regulation at both the global and the local level. So that's number one. Uh, number two, and I, I think that goes for risk management overall, which is scenario planning. Uh, we do not uh, need to predict the future, but we need to understand what happens to certain variables uh, given certain drivers. So if the government changes a policy, how, how my suppliers get impacted, how uh, my clients get impacted, and how ultimately my company uh, gets impacted. So understanding uh, different scenarios uh, and different implications in, in, in uh, each of them remains a powerful a risk management, a resource for ESG, for geopolitics, and certainly for ESG and geopolitics. And uh, we do that on a daily basis here at Contraris, uh, and we know it, it simply works. Uh, but then, uh, as Shika was saying earlier as well, uh, materiality assessments, I think it's key uh, for ESG, understanding exactly what type of ESG issue is material to your topic. Uh, maybe it will be supply chain management, maybe it will be uh, the relationship with local communities, I don't know, y- you do need to do uh, your uh, company-specific, sector-specific materiality assessment uh, so you can target better your ESG and risk management uh, approach. Uh, you asked, Claudine, um, the maturity of companies uh, uh, and uh, how we're seeing that. I think most of them are still early stage, honestly, uh, but the ones that I think they are the best positioned are the ones who, again, uh, have done the materiality assessments. They're uh, gathering the right data, the data that they need. Uh, they are creating and uh, establishing uh, credible goals for you know, uh, net zero and, and other aspects of uh, ESG. They're monitoring regulation and most importantly, 
they're engaging people internally to make sure that this actually uh, leads to something and not just, you know, a website, a part of the website that says ESG or responsible business or whatever. We're in action mode. Yeah. I'd like to add to Gabriel's point to include perhaps one more word, and that's supply chain resilience, really. Um, and that's particularly true, I think, for emerging markets where governments are increasingly trying to balance decarbonization plans with economic development and in doing so are coming out with what are seemingly conflicting strategies or policies. Um, so where whereas they're coming out with policies to ensure emissions reductions, it is also in, in the case of India, for example, supported uh, in parallel with a reinvigorated push for coal. Um, and, and, and these can have um, far-reaching consequences for organizations insofar as they're resilient to supply chains goes. Um, your operational costs on the two to five to seven year period, to 10 year period, what would that look like? Um, your own sort of carbon intensity, what would that look like? Especially in the, in the era where goalposts um, from a short to medium term continue to shift. We really need to keep an eye on those domestic political drivers of policy and understand how they may, might impact your, your exposure to ESG risk as well as your operational footprints, et cetera, et cetera. Shika, how much consistency do you think that we can ever expect to see at a global level on ESG regulation? Well, we are already beginning to see a degree of consistency, um, you know, regardless of where various governments and various countries are at their adoption of ESG regulations, right? I think a key factor to to, to look into this is to see how um, various governments have used um, their financial regulatory agencies as the promoters uh, and, and, and the holders of ESG regulations. Um, that is a trend that has remained consistent across developed and developing markets. And, and as other countries continue to incorporate their own ESG frameworks, this is likely to be the case. The second is around sort of finding ways to provide effective penalties or, or prosecution to, to non-compliant organizations. Um, and that is also being governed by a comply or explain approach where the onus is being put on businesses to explain um, you know what they are doing um, in terms of their disclosure reporting, reporting um, to 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 ensure that they are compliant and 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 re- behaving in a responsible manner. Where I think the inconsistency will continue and and likely I think should continue is where you take in the local factors um, of, of perhaps each 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 country, each region. However, we would like to break up um, the, the 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 globe at this point um, because I think that a key to understanding materiality risks lies in really um, looking into the local factors that 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 impact um, supply chains and their resilience and then thereafter the ESG scores of those those potential investors and businesses. Um, so I think inconsistency is is probably um, going to going to help create more reliable data um, that may then um, translate into better results uh, for the areas that they are intended to to, to serve. Um, what's the interplay between geopolitics and ESG or how is geopolitics evolving the ESG regulatory landscape? Well, we were speaking about US and China just a while ago. Um, and I think that trade tensions between the two countries can continue to pose challenges for securing supply chains for some of the green raw materials um, like critical minerals as well as semiconductors. Um, and this could be especially true for emerging markets, which could also eventually translate into transition delays. So it was, it was, it's interesting hearing about the way that states are positioning themselves on ESG and businesses too. Um, 
in ways that actually point to the opportunity that moving fast on ESG and moving effectively on this ESG may bring. Um, talk us through your perspective on that, Gabriel. Yes, of course. Uh, I think you're right. ESG in many ways is mostly about risk, but it can also be about opportunity, uh, both on the country and the company uh, side of the conversation. I think from the uh, company uh, side, and uh, this has been well documented, and we have in increasing evidence showing, uh, you know, reduced cost of capital, increased talent retention, uh, risk mitigation, all those things connected to uh, robust uh, ESG policies. I think that's uh, something that companies will continue to explore. Uh, but also on the country side of things, in, in addition to ESG or, or robust environmental uh, credentials being a strong uh, geopolitical uh, tool for this uh, volatile world that we have right now. Uh, there are also some first mover advantages out there. Uh, I was seeing recently uh, the Brazilian government uh, the other day making a push for uh, the, the so-called power sharing. So we have a number of different uh, sharing, sharing. The, the sharing family <laughs> right now, and yes, sharing, friendly sharing. But but for, for those who don't know, power sharing is about, as a country, offering to a business the opportunity to get clean energy for the supply chain. So, for example, in Brazil, uh, the, the country's uh, electricity grid uh, is almost 90% clean energy. Uh, so if a company wants to reduce uh, scope uh, one, two or three emissions, mm -hmm. they maybe can get suppliers from Brazil because that will help them decarbonize uh, their uh, supply chain. Uh, so th that that's uh, one of main examples of how countries can uh, try to attract investment by presenting uh, you know, competitive advantages in some niche sectors. It can be energy, uh, it can be in labor, uh, you, you know, and can be technology for uh, clean energy. And as Shika mentioned, critical minerals, there are a number of uh, opportunities out there for the grabs, definitely. Carbon credits. Absolutely. Yeah, that's probably the the, the most important uh, one right now, if you think of Latin America and, and Africa and many, many countries there, right? Yep. And likewise in India as well. Um, in fact, they just announced a new domestic market um, for, 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 for power intensive sectors. Um, and I think that's an effort to ensure that carbon credits don't actually continue to trade in the voluntary market, uh, which of course was set up on the back of the 2015 Paris Agreement. Um, but yeah, these are, these are very similar concerns in Asia as well, I think. Thank you for giving us a bit of a positive spin there and an interesting insight into the way that um, there are there's opportunity out there um, on ESG. A final question. What role do you two think ESG regulation will play in potentially transforming the way that business is conducted? Uh, I think ESG is part of a broader transformation we are currently experiencing on the back of a number of simultaneous trends such as uh, new generations entering uh, the labor market with significantly different approaches to uh, workspace, to investing, and so on. Uh, there are obviously still the effects of the COVID pandemic. Uh, there is uh, increased climate awareness. Uh, that, that's also a, a driver of a, a business transformation uh, in it, on its own. Uh, obviously, uh, significant technological shocks all the time. We, we don't know how AI, for example, will impact uh, the business environment in, I don't know, 10, 20 years time. But I think ESG is connected to all these trends. 
and will continue to transform the way business look at impacts specifically. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the teams might change, regulation might change, uh, some of the priorities might change, but this impact-centered uh, approach, uh, in my opinion, is, is likely uh, to, to be a legacy uh, of ESG in, in the coming years. Uh, but I'm very keen to hear uh, Shika's take on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree and only add that, as we were discussing earlier, um, we've already been looking at all of these aspects in different ways or under different terms. Um, and I think with the post-pandemic world and, and as Gabriel, as you mentioned, you know, emerging technological and other developments, um, ESG has sort of given a, a, a reinvigorated push um, to be able to bundle up some of those efforts prior efforts um, towards achieving a more targeted action um, to the ultimate um, ultimate fight really that that we as a conclusive of all the countries creating the geopolitical environment that we live in. And I think that is really what it's going to look like in years to come. Thanks both. I know I know our head of ESG um, partner based here in the UK, Maria Knapp, talks a lot about um the way that ESG regulation is following a pattern that was set many years earlier by anti-corruption legislation and how that in turn normalized and, and has changed the way that business is conducted in many parts of the world. And um, so I think I, I definitely agree with you, Gabrielle, that there's there's other factors in play too, particularly the demographics, different expectations of the workforce and, and what we as consumers expect of businesses, but um, and as employees, as shareholders, as stakeholders, what we expect of businesses and their impact. Um, but yes, I can I can see a world in which um, things are things are very different and ESG has played a, a part in that. I've learned a lot on this podcast. And if you would like to know more about how you can navigate the world of ESG, understand where it's going at a strategic level, think about how you're engaging with um, ESG issues, how you're ensuring that you are resilient near and long term uh, as a consequence of the way you're embracing the opportunities and the challenges that ESG regulation presents to you, please get in touch. Um, Shika, Gabriel, and many of our colleagues are supporting clients on a day-to-day -day basis understand the, both the tactical and the strategic implications of ESG. If you'd like to get in touch, all three of us have bios on the controlrisks.com website and we're on LinkedIn. Gabriel? Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Claudine. Thank you, Shika. It was a pleasure. And Shika, thank you for joining us from Delhi. Thank you very much for having me, Claudine and Gabrielle. If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world, making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.